Hello and welcome to Health in a Handbasket, your podcast about the sexy world of healthcare engineering. I'm Fidu Sakta and I'll be your host. I'm the Marketing and Community Manager at UCL's Institute of Healthcare Engineering. And although I don't always understand what's written in the research papers published by our academics, I know that what we're doing in the world of healthcare engineering is important and impactful. And I want to share that with you by speaking to those who know a bit more about it than me. So today we're picking out the topic of virtual reality and robots from our handbasket. 20 years ago, we'd never have heard of the word virtual reality and thought robots were bad things out to kill Sarah Connor. But here we are, in the future, and technically the Terminator travels back to 2029, so we're not that far off. Nowadays, we can buy virtual reality handsets from Curry's and robots are helping with surgeries and in Amazon warehouses. VR isn't just for an enhanced gaming experience. VR or virtual reality can be used to help treat us. Robots aren't taking over the world. They're also here to make our lives better. And that's where Peter comes in. Peter Snow is a lecturer at UCL at the Institute of Orthopaedics and Musculoskeletal Science. He has a background in computer science, and then he went on to do artificial intelligence before completing a PhD in rehabilitation robotics, the kind of robotics that helps you recover from injuries. Currently, he's working on robots that can alleviate phantom limb pain in upper limb amputees. And Peter's a busy boy, because he also develops surgical simulations using VR and robotics. Let's start off with what is phantom limb pain? So phantom limb pain is a painful sensation experienced by those who generally have had a traumatic amputation. You get the phantom limb sensation, which Mm. is the fact that you feel that your limb is there, even though Uh. it's not. But for those who have had a traumatic amputation, they generally have a feeling uh, painful sensations uh, associated with that limb. So you can still feel like your fingers and stuff, even if it's not there? Yep. Uh, so mm. you can feel your limb in like weird positions. You can feel um, your hands could be like crumpled up. It could feel like your hands being f- frozen or on fire mm. or being crushed. Um, but what's interesting is the fact that those who are born without a limb, they have the sensation that their limb is there, but they very rarely have the actual painful sensations that actually come with that, with that uh, phantom limb. Oh, that's so interesting. So even if they've never had, like, I don't know, half their arm, they Mm -hmm. can still feel it? Yep. Is that like a social thing or is that a psychological... Um, It's probably a mixture of the both. It's difficult to tell. So I think when it comes to things like limbs, uh, it's all connected to the brain and the sensations within the brain. So Mm. those those haven't changed, even though you don't have have a limb. But for those people who are obviously born without a limb... They obviously still have those sensations in their brain, but they obviously don't physically have the limb, mm. which is why they probably get those feeling that their hand is there or the limb is there, but they don't have the pain. But it's a very difficult uh, area. There's lots of back and forth between different theories and there's a lot of arguing within the community. Mm. Um, but that is changing over you know, course of the years. Mm. Uh, neuro, neuroimaging is helping a lot. What's neuroimaging? Uh, things like MR, like scanning, to look at what's happening within the brain. Okay, cool. So are there any treatments for phantom limb pain at the moment? There's no effective treatments. One of the, the, the two most common ones are uh, drugs, and the other one is more surgical revisions. So that's if you've had an amputation, if there's uh, other issues, they might need to uh, 
give that patient further surgery. Um, what do you mean, like infection and stuff? Could be infection. It could be um, if they have something called a stump ne- uh, neuroma, mm-hmm. and that's when if you've had an amputation, yeah. uh, your your nerves stop bundling because they get tangled up. That mm-hmm. can cause pain, and uh. that would mean that they would have to have a a operation to actually remove that nerve. So yeah, it's a it's a pretty serious uh, yeah. condition. And then other than surgical interventions, you can have things like uh, obviously uh, pharmacological interventions, but you can have side effects such as, you know, issues with mood, sleep, pain. Um, mm. It could cause more longer term issues. So in terms of, effect, of, of effective treatment, there doesn't tend to be any, you know, number one uh, way of uh, treating phantom limb pain. But one of the uh, treatments which is non-invasive, uh, which is what the research is roughly based on, is mirror box therapy. So that's using what we call a visual surrogate. Mm. What you do is you would have a big uh, mirror. You would put your intact limb and your um, amputated limb, and this works for both lower and upper limb. So on each side you'd put one hand kind of thing. Yeah, mm. and then what you're seeing in the mirrored image is, well, the mirrored image of your intact limb. Mm-hmm. So we know that has varied success. Uh, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. And what you're seeing is you're seeing the, the mirrored limb, and then when you move, you're seeing obviously the, the movements. So it uh-huh. looks like that your limb is there. And for some people it works, some people it doesn't. But you know it's it's, it's non-invasive. Um, mm. So if it works, then it's good for that participant. But again, similar to the drugs, it can be quite varied in the effectiveness. Also, you can't really do it all the time. You can't like yeah. stick a mirror in the middle of a restaurant kind of thing. And absolutely, and, yeah, um, yeah. It's yeah, it's yeah, it's quite quite a big thing. Um, mm. But that's what initial technology. So what happened was when VR started to get cheaper and cheaper. One of the ways that people started to translate this is to use VR headsets mm. directly. So you would have sensors on your intact limb. What kind of sensors though? I guess like sticky things on your hand. Kind of sticky things or like a, like, a, like a glove with some mm. sensors on. Uh, and then when you move your intact limb, so exactly the same mm. as what you would do with the mirror, but then you'd see it virtually. So, so you put see... like a headset on, yeah. put stuff on your hand, yeah, and then that kind of like helps you. Yeah, so see. what you'd see is the, the movement that you made in your intact limb, exactly like the traditional mirror box therapy, you would see on the on the amputated side mm. uh, in virtual reality. And that's kind of what you're working on at the moment. Similar. The one, well, the two big issues are the fact that, number one, you're only visually seeing it. You're mm. not getting any what we call tactile feedback. So obviously vision is a sense, but so is uh, force feedback. So the, the sense of touch. Mm-hmm. And that's, what's, that's one of the things that's missing. The other thing that's missing is that your brain clearly knows that it's not the affected side mm. which is making those movements. Your brain knows that, well, okay, well, I'm actually yeah. moving my intact limb and that I can see it on the, on the affected limb. So what we did is we used the idea of, of, of the virtual reality, but by using a robot which has previously been used for stroke rehab, we can actually make you, because you're, the limb that you're moving around is the effective limb. Mm-hmm. What, so, so what you get, like something attached to you so there's like a 
when we say a robot, it's not as like fancy or doesn't look as like as, <laughs> as, as sexy as like a normal robot. It's basically a big black box with like a big black cylinder arm. Okay, um, that's not what I was imagining. <laughs> it's it's very much designed for rehab and for purpose. Okay. Um, and then you have like a, a plastic, what we call gimbal. What's uh, a gimbal? So a gimbal takes the, the orientation. So it's basically like a plastic cuff. Oh, okay. So you place your arm on the your uh, affected arm yeah. on the cuff. And then what that allows you to do is it allows you to get the movement yeah. and the rotation. And we take that rotation and the movement and we put it on the virtual avatar. Mm. So it looks like, um, so for example, we're sitting in front of a desk. Um, you, If you were a participant on the system, you would have your arm on the robot. And as you're moving around, you'd see your affected arm moving around as if nothing was wrong. Mm. So you put like sensors on like whatever's left of the limb. Yeah. And then you track the muscle spasm activity. Activity. Yeah. And then that kind of like is is on a virtual stimulation like it's in their VR headset like they yep. can see themselves. So you don't actually put anything you don't attach anything onto what's left of the limb like a robot. You know like how you see like prosthetics and stuff. Yeah. You don't do that. We don't. And that's that's a, that's an important point because having a prosthesis fitted takes time you need to have the the wound to heal uh, there's lots of issues with you know different uh, variations of, of a prosthesis that can take time mm. um, the benefit of using the system that we developed um, is the fact that you can use it fairly fairly soon after an amputation mm. and that's important because it could potentially stop the painful maladaptations happening so we have that, we have the robot, we have the VR, we have the, the sensors for the muscles, mm. but the robot does something else. It provides what we call force feedback or haptic feedback. And we've demonstrated haptics for 10, 15 years. And it's always one of those things where it's really easy to, to show than, than actually to, to tell. But basically, a haptic robot allows you to feel virtual objects physically. So if you, if you're on the system and you have like a like a jug of water, if you bang into the jug of water, the virtual jug of water, we can uh, send commands to the robot mm. to stop you from going through the the water. Mm. If you pick up using the virtual opening and closing of the hand from the muscles, you can pick up that that jug of water and you can feel the weight that's being applied on the actual robot. Oh. So that is one of the, the, the key elements of the system is to allow you to actually feel the virtual objects physically on your affected mm. arm. That's so interesting. So what stage is this work currently at? So the work with amputees was part of my PhD. So that's carrying on. Um, so we've done about in total 18 to 20 uh, participants. You're not doing your PhD at the moment. What stage in your career are you at now? postdoc lecturer so like I guess you could say early career okay so that yeah. comes like a few years after PhD yeah. right okay yeah. so with uh, the initial work was with amputees uh, and we've now carried that on to different pain populations including upper limb uh, nerve damage who are potentially at risk of having an amputation um, uh, who still have pain we've done a upper limb nerve damage like what like your hands not so for example we had one participant who unfortunately had an accident and it yeah. basically crushed the hand oh. um, and they had no movement of their of their fingers yeah. uh, and they had pain as, as a result so putting them on the on, on the system and the 
the protocol for the potential treatment. We've also had people with spinal cord injury who have had uh, phantom limbs, um, not so much with pain, but more troubling sensations. We've had a lower limb uh, nerve damage participant, mm. and we've recently started a ORUK um, study looking at shoulder pain, which is obviously a massive issue as well. Mm. Okay. So what's the end goal of all of this? Is it currently being used at the moment? How can people access this? So at the moment, it's, it's purely research, mm-hmm. but we're in the process of applying for grants to create uh, innovation clinics and hubs to help technology with people with pain. So like people would go to those hubs and use it? Yep. Yeah. The, the main uh, goal of the actual uh, work is to include it into the NHS mm. uh, as part of their service delivery plan and also to have a clinical system and maybe a more low-cost version or a VR-only or VR and small low-cost robot version that people can take uh, home. VR's come down a lot in pricing nowadays. Like like I said earlier, you can buy it, VR headsets off curries and so on. So how much are we talking about these low-cost systems? Well, I mean, you can even use a mobile phone for like a VR headset. Uh, so yeah. there's that. Um, the price of headsets have come down massively um, since the Oculus was released. So back in the 90s and even the early 2000s, it would have cost thousands of pounds for a headset. But with companies uh, like, like Oculus developing the Oculus Rift and others, it's massively come down in price. So you're talking even a couple of hundred pounds for a fairly good headset. So how did you get into this field? Well, initially, uh, my background was in computer science. Uh, so I first had a computer when I was four years old. My, my oh, parents wow. my parents used my own savings for my uh, grandparents <laughs> uh, because they thought it would be a good investment. And, well, it, 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 it turned out to be right. Yeah. Um, so I've always been interested in computing. And I did computer science. And then I took modules in artificial intelligence some quite interesting modules on social intelligence in animals and, and robots and quite interesting oh, stuff. Tell me something interesting. It sounds very interesting. So, I mean, one ant is fairly useless, but thousands of ants are very, very intelligent and they can create pathways. They can ah. use, I guess, what we call social intelligence in order to solve problems. So ah. taking more bio-inspired ideas mm. and then putting them into uh, computers and, mm. and artificial intelligence. And as a result of that, um, I decided, okay, maybe I want to do a master's in this. And I did a master's in artificial intelligence with robotics. And then during that, we did the RoboCup, uh, mm-hmm. which was getting robots to play football. Uh-huh. And so I... you, you pit two robots against each other, or two robot families against each other. <laughs> robot families, teams of robots. Oh, uh, yeah, that's yeah. a better word. <laughs> teams of robots. Uh, family as well, if, you, if you're talking about football, uh, even though I'm not a big football fan. Um, and then I got involved in that because my my final project for my, for my mm. master's was looking at stability controls and how we make humanoid robots, mm. how you basically make them more stable and walk faster and not fall over. And that was applied to the football team, the RoboCup football team. Uh, and we did very well. We won the German Open in 2018, Ooh. which is like the European Cup. Uh, and we came joint second, joint first, sorry, in 20, uh, 2009. And we came second in the world in 2009 Whoa. as well. Second in the world. Mm-hmm. Pretty impressive. And then since then, well, the 
recession hits uh, and I needed to get a job. Um, so I ended up working as, a, as an IT technician for a few mm. years. But then I met my uh, PhD supervisor, who who is now my line manager, Rui. And we had a few projects that he'd applied mm. for. And one of them was the project on phantom limb pain, which was funded by the uh, mm. Ministry of Defence. Why Ministry of Defence? What, because of the wars and stuff? Yep. So this was 2012, which is the height of Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, and obviously you were having a lot of people come back with missing limbs yeah. uh, and phantom limb pain. So that was one of the, the calls for funding that we applied and we, we got, thankfully. And the rest is history. I think that's super interesting that you, it wasn't like a linear trajectory for you. It wasn't, you know, master's, PhD, postdoc. It was, you had a, a time in uh, in IT, right? IT support, really. IT support. So yeah. you, you, uh, you left the world of academia and you did something else. And I, th- that's so interesting because I think a lot of people think that you stay in academia, you, you, you just live in academia and that's all there is. So how has your own personal experiences shaped your journey, like all of those things happening? Well, interestingly, uh, about a year ago, I had to talk to undergraduates about mm. healthcare engineering and my journey. And one of the things it, it actually occurred to me was the fact that because I was born three months too early, mm. uh, premature, I ended up being put in a incubator. So the only reason why I, I, I survived and I'm here today is, is because of healthcare engineering, mm. because if that incubator hadn't been developed, then I, I, well, I wouldn't be here. So, so you were born to do healthcare engineering, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then subconsciously, I kind of gone down that path. Yeah. And I think, yeah, you, you kind of like fall into the cracks and you kind of make your, make mm. your own way there. Yeah, there's no there's no path to to working in, in healthcare engineering or, or research. You know, you, you kind of just fall into it. So for my master's work with the robots, you know, making them walk faster, I initially wanted to actually do that, mm. and obviously the recession hit, but then I met Rui, and then we looked at different types of limbs, so instead of the lower limb, the upper mm. limb, and that's how we kind of got involved in that project. I like the stuff you said about um, the the fact that you had more like bumps on the road and stuff like that. Mm. So yeah, there, there was no kind of like no set trajectory into healthcare engineering, so when the recession hit back mm. in 2000 and nine and then it really bit bit in 2010 that was right when I was finishing my my, mm. my master's you know I wanted to go into research uh, to carry on uh, and all the research budgets around the world just uh, you know tightened yeah. up and you know you did feel kind of feel like oh well you know you, you've got to delay again and it is frustrating but you you do get there and uh, you know I'm, I'm a big believer in you know what is meant to be bees mm. basically you know so yeah it's no simple path, but yeah, you get there in the end. And during the PhD, I was diagnosed with uh, testicular cancer mm-hmm. right when we got the ethics uh, to actually start. So we had to delay that. So yeah, nothing is straightforward. If it was straightforward, it will be, it will be boring. Um, yeah. So, but you, you kind of get there in the end and uh, yeah, things happen for a reason. Yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah, kudos to you, like overcoming all of that stuff. And actually, you could Crazy. probably say <laughs> health engineering helped again because mm. obviously, you know, the CT, MR, the surgery and everything involved in the, in, in the cancer as well, again, got me through that as well. So, yeah, mm. you can kind of bookend, the uh, you know, being born and, uh, you know, getting <laughs> through a part of my life using healthcare engineering. I think that's the crazy thing about healthcare engineering is people don't realise how it impacts their regular lives on a nearly everyday basis and like you said like things like ct scans and 
an incubator and stuff like that, you don't think of it as healthcare engineering, but it is. Someone thought about it, someone created it, someone saw a solution to a problem, and that's why you're able to live and you have these medicinal or you know technologies to help you live. Absolutely. And actually a lot of the the healthcare engineering is actually developed here in the UK and mm. my wife who actually works for a healthcare uh, company for MR you know I, I get to talk to the, the people involved in, in their company as well and it, I see the similarities between obviously the work that we we kind of do and, and the work that she does mm. because that's very commercial and obviously we're, we're not commercial but we do have commercial aspirations so it's seeing those difficulties and seeing what's happening in, in healthcare technology in, in business versus research yeah. as well is, is quite interesting. No, definitely. You're also working on another project, like I said, Busy Busy Boy. And uh, you're working with VR robotics again, but with surgeons? That's correct. So the, the, the technology we use, uh, VR and, and Un Unreal Engine, which is the software we use to develop the, the virtual... Is that Unreal Engine? Yeah, that's right. So that's what they use to make video games. Oh. We use a same or similar version of the system we use for rehabilitation, but we use it for training surgeons. Yeah. Um, so it's like they play a game? Kind of, uh, but the game is a, is a slice of the actual procedure that they mm. actually will be doing in real life. So we can take patient data from CT and MR, mm. we can put it into the, the simulator, and we can get them to practice um, on, the, on the simulator. Oh. And the benefit of that is the fact that traditionally they would use a cadaver or they would use like a, like a phantom. Phantom? But, uh, <laughs> They're not using a ghost. <laughs> no, no, so uh, a physical phantom as in like a, an approximation, so it'd be like a, like a, like a plastic version of oh, an okay. organ. And the benefit of using a VR system is the fact that, well, robots like data, we can see what you're doing, how you're moving, mm. if you're cutting too much. We can even see what you're looking at as well. So we use uh, it for training as well. And then you get like feedback and... Yep, we yeah. get, get the same haptic feedback as we do for the rehabilitation, but then we can do different types of feedback. So bone or a tumour within like, for example, a liver, um, when you're cutting things. So uh, we doing a series of uh, procedures um, and we're doing some usability studies with those as well. So at the end of it, I guess the surgeon gets like a report saying you did this well and you did that not so well? Pretty much. Uh, yeah. And then we can also look at the what we call the gold standard. Mm. So that is a consultant that will perform the uh, procedure on the simulator mm. and then we can see how trainees compare oh. to the actual uh, consultant. This is like before they get into an actual yep. surgical ward? Pretty much, yeah. They yeah. can practice as many times yeah. and it's completely safe. Um, and it's mainly the, the, the manual skills of cutting uh, and, and pressure and how much you cut and then the actual procedures, the steps involved in the actual mm. surgery that they're, they're practicing safely. Mm. So fewer mistakes and all that stuff. Yeah. Okay. So what's next in your very enlightening career? Well, uh, hopefully I can carry on working in this field. At the moment, I'm technically part-time, so hopefully we can try and move, move myself onto a, onto a full-time contract to be a permanent lecturer. But also, I'd like to do more clinical work, so I'm in the process of applying to be a clinical scientist. How's that different from the kind of scientist you're at? Currently? This is more heavily involved with the, with the NHS or mm. with uh, healthcare providers. 
Um, and what this involves is allowing me to work um, independently within a hospital in, say, for example, a, a innov innovations clinic, uh, such as using technology like VR or, or robotics mm. for pain or patient populations. And then from that, it's going to be a long procedure. Uh, I'm hoping to do more training to hopefully become maybe a clinical academic or something along those lines. And so currently you're like working at UCL. Mm -hmm. And so then you're going to go on to be working in a hospital? So in theory, UCL offers uh, clinical academic roles. Yeah. Uh, so those are kind of split between the hospital and, and UCL. Ah, okay, I didn't know you could do that. I didn't know. I thought you had to just work at university or work at a hospital. Yeah, it's not not commonly uh, a route that people go mm. go down or that people are are actually aware. But mm. if like me, you've got a lot of experience in working in a hospital and working with an intervention, which actually on a day to day basis you're working with with patients. You know, you are technically uh, eligible to actually uh, go down that route. Okay. Oh, super interesting. Thank you for coming along, Peter. That's okay. I learned Thank loads you. of things. You know, you're doing some great work. And I think it's a reminder to everyone that someone's academic career or any career really isn't linear. There's there's loads of roads that you can take towards becoming a clinical academic. Yep, That's one day. Or different pathways which could support that role or, yeah. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you for having me. Health in a Handbasket is produced by UCL's Institute of Healthcare Engineering and edited by Keris Bradley. The Institute of Healthcare Engineering brings together leading researchers to develop the tools and devices that will make your life better. We're using this podcast to share all the amazing work taking place. You can learn more by searching UCL Health in a Handbasket or following the link in the show notes. So share with your friends and family if you found this interesting. We're available everywhere, especially where you just listen to us.